All right, 1 John chapter 3. We left off there. We're going verse by verse through the New Testament. We find ourselves in the third chapter of the first epistle of John. We'll pick up where we left off at verse 4 in just a moment. Now, a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful new day filled with your mercies and your kind intentions toward your people. For Father, your plan is to do uh, us well today. You have kind intentions to, as your word says, to prosper us, not to harm us, to give us a hope and a future. And may we realize your good intentions toward us as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I read an uh, article this week, an interesting problem that some people have who order garden seeds from various online seed companies. Sometimes, much to the grower's surprise, the plant that springs up is not what they expected or what they thought they had ordered. And uh, there was one guy complaining on this, in this article. Uh, he wanted a new kind of tomato. He, he had tried the zebra tomatoes, and they were zesty and spicy, and he couldn't wait to get some. And he found uh, a place that had them, and he ordered them, and he paid some good money for it, and he planted them. But when they came up, this is what they are supposed to look like, zebra tomatoes. And don't they look wonderful? Are you a tomato person? Raise your hand if you're a tomato person. That's why you like it here, because I am a tomato person. <laughs> and of course, uh, yes, it makes sense. So they put the, the seeds in, and they're waiting, and up come these wonderful little plants. But lo and behold, these, these dorky little cherry tomatoes <laughs> appeared. And he's like, what? This is not what I planted in the ground. But yes, sir, it was what you ended up planting in the ground. Now, apparently, this kind of thing happens every so often, even with reputable companies. But for most folks, of course, it's hard to tell just by looking at the seed what kind of variety of plant you're going to get for most of us, right? I mean, I, I get the coconut. I, I know it's going to come from a coconut, don't you? <laughs> A palm tree, right? I'm not going to do that second service. I already tried it out. It didn't work. Thank you. So just note to self, delete the coconut remark. <laughs> All right. So uh, it, what, normally, it's what you see is what you get. You know, uh, for example, I get a lot of books, commentaries, on the Bible, as you would imagine, and I order them from CBD, and a box will come filled with First John commentaries. In the middle of it, there'll be a commentary on First Thessalonians, and so that's a pretty obvious. This doesn't go. This isn't what I want. I send it back. But with seed, you kind of have to let it germinate and grow and produce fruit to verify its true identity. Wait and see, and sure enough, the truth is made known to all. Now in the Bible, here in 1 John, the same is true with spiritual seed. John says what's sown in a person's heart will grow and determine what kind of person they are and that will be evident to all. You will know what a person believes on the inside 
by the way they live on the outside. Seeds of faith sown by God uh, in a person's heart will produce a certain kind of behavior, a certain kind of person. Seeds of unbelief sown by the Lord's enemy produces another kind of person and another kind of behavior. Like Jesus taught regarding false teachers, there's a surefire way you can know who you're dealing with. Just look at what's springing up from their lives. By their fruit, you will know them, Matthew 7, 16. So John, this morning in this text we're about to look at, will elaborate on Jesus' proverb here about knowing what's going on with a person by the kind of behavior that is hanging on their branches, as it were. So the context, the Christians really uh, of John's day are really upset, they're confused. Um, their former leaders began teaching, as you have heard each Sunday now, uh, they began teaching their new take on Christianity, which was really not the gospel at all. It was a false religion and they were false teachers. They had quite a popular following. They were claiming all the same claims. Hey, uh, you know, they had church services. They were born of God. They were walking in the light. They claimed to have seen the light. The problem is it was the wrong light, and they were certainly not born of God in the sense that the scriptures talk about. So born again Christians of John's day who were still holding to the gospel truths that the Bible says were once and for all entrusted to God's people, were blindsided and confused. They were saying things like all of this conflicting ideas and theological jargon being tossed around. We can't tell who's who. John says, oh yeah, you can. Verse four, everyone who sins breaks the law. That's God's moral law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or knows him or has known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Here it is. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. We're going to pause there and reflect on these pretty um, sobering words. Now, a proper understanding of this text, the words I just read to you, were intended to bring clarity, peace, assurance, motivation, and most of all, encouragement. And that's what you'll get if you properly understand these words. If you misunderstand this text, as I'm afraid multitudes of Christians do, 
you will not be encouraged at all. You will have great anxiety, confusion, and uh, give way to what I would consider neurotic Christian behavior. So we don't want that, do we? No. Okay. Our text divides nicely into two ideas. Then first John says, let's define the facts. Since they're messing with the facts, these false teachers, let's get back to what the Bible says about these specific words like sin and God and righteousness. Let's define that so that we have a benchmark. And then secondly, so that we will not be led astray. So those are our two points. Defining the facts so that we will, number two, not be led astray. So as I said, this new teaching proclaimed that uh, you can know the love of God, walk in the light, be enlightened, but continue to sin. They had found a way to have their cake and eat it too. And this new transcendent knowledge erased the narrow former definition of sin and right and wrong. You could be spiritual, have your own relationship with God, and not be tied to old school biblical rules for morality. So John wants to show the ridiculousness of that whole idea. So he starts out by saying, can, can I remind you about the facts? Let's just start with what is sin. And then he's going to go through a little list so that we can get our bearings, so that we can see that knowing God, loving him, being saved, and continuing in a lifestyle of sin, which was their big deal, to say, hey, I'm cool with God but I'm living any way I want to. He says, let me assure you that that's a theological impossibility. A claim to know God must be evidenced by a life that's being morally transformed or you've got the wrong seed. Now, a simple review of the facts then he's, are gonna be very helpful. He says, let's start with a big ticket item, sin, because they're messing with that concept. This definition is key. Since the newfangled spirituality uh, now had little regard for God's law or sin against it, let's get God's take on what sin is. So John's simplicity is astounding. Now, you know, you have the subject of ethics these days, and you can get a degree in it. Uh, our best universities and academic programs offer these degrees. Ethics is kind of a moral philosophy. It's a branch of philosophy that involves systematizing uh, and defending and recommending concepts of right and wrong. In other words, there are hundreds of experts out there with endless book after book about what's wrong, what constitutes uh, what's right, and how to live out our lives. Now, I was talking to somebody, there's lots of ideas about what sin is and what right and wrong is. And when you uh, present the gospel to somebody, you usually hear the same kinds of things, like when I say, well, what about your sin? And they say, what are you talking about? What sin? Well, how about when you lie? Oh, yeah, I don't call that a sin. 
Well, what do you call that? He says, well, you know, it depends. Sometimes you would think it's a lie, but I don't think it's a lie. And so I'm defining what that is. And, and I said, so you always do the right thing. And he said, you know, sometimes I, I, I don't live up to my own ideals, but I'm learning and growing and I'm being a good person and I'm being genuinely, uh, genuinely honest. And I don't hurt people. And so, yeah, I don't see that as, as sinning. I see it as being part of the human condition, something that you share with me, don't you? And I say, well, I share that human condition, and it's called the sin. And, and so there's a di- different, well, you know, someone has got to tell them, right? That's my job. And so the apostle of God, speaking for God, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, says, you know what, let's get through past the volumes of books and the experts on CNN and PBS and all of that. Let me just tell you, it's in, let's define it in one word, lawlessness. Thank you for just making it easy. In the Greek, anamia, it means to be without law without restriction. Now he says, sin is lawlessness. And when he says that, the word really iniquity or lawlessness is really has the flavor of association of wrongdoing like the devil did. So it has a flavor of a rebellion that throws off God's moral restraint. That's what a lawless person does. That's how the Antichrist is described. That is how the devil is described. I will do what I want and disregard God's moral law, his will, and his word. I will just do whatever. And and so first he says sin is breaking God's command. He says, for example, don't lie. You tell a fat one, bingo, you've sinned. That's the first part, clause one. Clause two, he goes a little bit deeper. He says, you know what? Let me simplify this and get to the root of why you did the sin. The root of why you did the sin, one word, lawlessness. You want to do your own thing. So the energy behind, the impetus behind the actual transgression of the law, thou shalt not sin, is lawlessness. And he says, if you want to know what sin is, it's that spirit of rebellion that says, I don't recognize your laws. If I want to lie, I will lie. If I want to lust, I I will lust. If I want to be sexually immoral, I will be promiscuous. I'm the captain of my own destiny. That is the essence of biblical sin. Somebody who does whatever they want, whenever they want, because they want, without regard to God. Now, it's pretty simple here. We see it. That's how we're born. We all are like that in our lower natures. I I read this. This is a famous illustration. A a young kid is in the back seat and wanting to see outside. And so they're standing up in the car. And mom is saying, listen, sit down. I've told you this three times. Sit down, put on your seatbelt. And three times, four times, five times, you know, it goes on and on and on. And finally, uh, she turns around and she had a little 
paddle, and she gave the child one little swat, just like it says to do in the Bible. Now, but I, but I digress. <laughs> and so after the one little swat, not done in anger, and not done abusively, but one little light little swat, but I digress, uh, the child says, Mommy, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, just so you know. And yeah, anybody have children? And yeah, all right, moving on. So one word, lawless, just beautiful. John, thank you. You know what, you just saved me hours of this convoluted debate with all these theological big words that I would have to engage these guys, and boy, could they talk. And he says, just, just cut right past all the words. Look at the life. Are they doing whatever they want when compared to what God's word says? Bingo, you got it. You don't have to engage and spend all of these hours talking about Listen to the definition of Gnosticism. This is the easiest one I found. This is what they were teaching. Gnostics believed that matter was evil, and as a result, God would not take on a material body. This statement is rooted in the idea that a divine spark is imprisoned within the material body, and that the material body is in itself an obstacle deliberately created by an evil lesser God to prevent man from seeing his divine origin. John says, just look at them. They doing their own thing? False teacher. Because somebody who is teaching sound doctrine has a life that reflects reverence for God's moral code. Simple. Talking about docetism, they were teaching dualism. That means uh, the body is bad. Whatever you do in the body doesn't count. It's temporary. It's just you've been enlightened in the spirit. Therefore, that's the only thing that matters is this new knowledge of yours. So you, it's cool. Go ahead and do it. You know, there was a youth pastor who was relieved of his position because he was being promiscuous with the young ladies in the church, sexually immoral. He quoted in his defense to the young ladies he was seducing, he quoted Romans chapter 7 that says, uh, it's not me who's doing the sin, it's the sin in me. You see, so it's not even you, it's not me, it's our human natures. God doesn't even hold Paul the Apostle because Paul the Apostle said, hey, it's not even me who, who does it. I'm saying I don't want to do it, I end up doing it, therefore it's not even me doing it, it's the sin that lives in me. That's what Paul says, Romans 7. However, that's not what Paul means. What Paul means is saying, listen, when I sin, it's not even the true self of who God is making me. I can see two parts of me. I can see the old part, this dead, sinful nature trying to gain control of my life. And he says, that's not me. He doesn't say, I'm not responsible for that. He's just saying, that's not the person that God has designed me to be now that I'm born again. But take a perverted person's mind and they 
will stop at nothing to get what the flesh desires. They'll stop at nothing. They will stop at nothing. Listen, we want sin so bad, we're going to make it into a religion. We're going to incorporate it into our worship, into our dogma, so that we can get it. We're going to quote Paul. Look at Paul. John says, look at the life. You can look at that youth pastor's life. Just look at his life. Is he doing his own thing? Making up his own laws? Two thumbs down. And for either a season, he's not walking with God, or he never has walked with God. One of the two things are true. So definition of sin, very easy there. Um, and secondly, let's define Jesus' mission. He says, yes, moving on to verse 5, that's a terrible fact of sin. But you know the whole reason Jesus came in the first place was to get rid of all of our sins, and there's absolutely no sin in him at all. And so uh, Jesus, uh, rather, John, has defined what sin is, and now he defines who the sin bearer is is and the purpose of Jesus' life. Because this is going to really make sense, all right? He's going to say, he's building an argument to why our lives are different from unbelievers' lives morally. And he says, well, let's look at why Jesus came. Jesus came, and it's wonderful in the Greek, in verse 5. It says, Jesus came to pick up our sins and carry them away. A beautiful picture there. You can think of it as, uh, like, a garbage man, a, a sanitation uh, technician uh, coming around town. How wonderful is it to when your trash is overflowing and it smells in the morning and you, and you walk by and you go, whoa, what's in that thing? And, and, and it's coming on the coffee grounds and the, you know, I don't need to describe it, right? You got it? And so you pick that thing up and you go out a few, uh, a few feet from the door. You toss it in. You cover it up. And you know within a few days it's going to be picked up and carried away. And as far as you're concerned, you're never going to see it again. Usually, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a wonderful thing. And the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, he has picked up our sins and taken them away to a place where if you wanted to, you're never going to find that dump where all your sins are because God hid them there. He hid them there from himself. He said, I will put them in a sea of forgetfulness. I will will myself to forget. So John's saying, now, where did he come in the first place? All of you who love your sin out there and say, oh, I can sin, I can sin, I can sin. What did Jesus come for? Your Lord and your Savior. He came to pick up those sins and carry them off away from you. And now you've got a picture of these false teachers saying, hey, hold on here. Hold on. And they got the garbage. Jesus is saying, hey, I came to pick it up and take it away. Uh, <laughs> I don't want you to pick it up and take it away because I want that. It's okay. Well, that flies in the face of why he came. 
He carried our sins and our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We were like sheep gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John introduces us to Jesus in his first chapter of his gospel by saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So somebody who lives a lifestyle embracing sin couldn't possibly be in union with the sin bearer whose sole purpose on earth was to come and pick it up and take it away. He's making you look ridiculous by your lifestyle of clinging and claiming. This doesn't work that way. Now, here comes his logical uh, conclusion. If the definition of Jesus' mission is to remove our sins at the cost of his own torturous death, if the definition of who Jesus is, he says, and in him is no sin, if the definition of his nature is sinlessness, if the definition of sin is breaking his commands, then how can anyone claim to know God and continue in, listen, a pattern of habitual practice of sin? Now, and here's the definition of the Christian life. So the third thing. No one, verse 6, and this will give you the heebie-jeebies if you read it correctly. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning it's, it's even harsher in the King James because it just says sins. No one who continues to sin, to keep on sinning, no one who continues in sin has either seen him or knows him. Now, we need to explain that because everybody in this room has continued to sin. But it just says here, if you have, you don't know him. What does he mean? First of all, what he does not mean, he does not mean that we are sinless and that once you come to know Christ, you never sin again. That is impossible of a meaning because the entire Bible teaches otherwise. We already know John expects the believer to continue to sin occasionally. He said, if we say we have not sinned, if we say we don't sin, we make him a liar. When you do sin, you need to confess that sin. So he tells you how to deal with the uh, outbreak of occasional sin that happens in every believer's life. Paul the Apostle gives his own struggle, saying all the time, I feel like a crazy man. I know the right thing to do, I dedicate myself to do it, and I end up doing the wrong thing. I end up sinning. Paul the Apostle said, hey, I'm the worst sinner I know. So we understand that he's not saying whoever continues to sin in the sense of sinless, per, for, uh, wanting us to be sinless and perfect. Um, really, the Bible shows us what he's talking about. Uh, I, I love what Alfred Plummer said, and I think he's got it. Although the believer sometimes sins, it's not sin, but opposition to sin that is the driving force, the ruling principle of his life, 
For whenever he does sin, he confesses it, he's miserable in it, he wins forgiveness from it, he perseveres by turning from it and cooperating with the Holy Spirit. But a habitual sinner does none of these things. Sin is his ruling principle, and this could not be the case if he's truly walking with God. David Guzik now. In some ways, the question is not, do you sin or do you not? We all sin. The question is, how do you react when you sin? Do you give in to the pattern of sin and let it dominate your lifestyle? Or do you humbly confess your sin, turn from it, do battle against it with the power Jesus can give? I think Mary Magdalene's conversion is a great example she changed her clothes. She changed her lifestyle. She did continue to sin, didn't she? She had to have because she's a human being. But she no longer continued as an unbelieving prostitute. She wasn't transformed into a sinless, perfect being but she broke the pattern because God placed his seed in her believing heart, and now there's a divorce in progress. There's a legal separation. It's not perfect yet. It will be finalized in the day she sees him face to face. But that woman is no longer the woman she was. That's the point. Is, is that when Christ comes into our lives, the lifestyle pattern dominated us of sin and unbelief is broken. We're not that person. Now, if you're thinking, well, I wasn't a prostitute, nor was I a murderer like the Apostle Paul, because I always quote the Apostle Paul as well. He sees the light, Acts chapter 9, boom, he's done persecuting Christians. Does he sin? Still, he does. He continues to sin, and he tells us about it. But is he an unbelieving, proud Pharisee who's killing Christians? No, he's not that guy. He doesn't continue in sin. He may continue to sin, but you don't continue in sin. You can't have the lifestyle of, of embracing it and condoning it and letting it have its way. And how about our, our morally inclined unbelievers who are just passive aggressive toward God? In other words, they, didn't, uh, they weren't sexually promiscuous. They gave to charity, so they didn't cuss or swear or anything. They were such good people. What happens when Christ comes into their lives? There's a change. They're no longer proud of their good works and relying on their good works. They're no longer doing whatever they want to do, ignoring God. Now they're listening for his voice and doing his will. You see, there's a discontinuation with the patterns of unbelief. You cannot continue in sin and maintain a life that dishonors God, disregarding his will and breaking his commands, and call yourself a Christian. Our attitude is this. We disown it, we renounce it, we hate it, we stand in it, and when we, when we slip into it, we, we hate it. Somebody was asked, hey, have you gotten to the place, this man of God, 
you gotten to the place where you don't sin anymore? And he said, no, I have not. But he said, I have gotten to the place where when I sin, I cannot enjoy it anymore. I think that's the point. Moving on, and I only have a little bit of time left to do point two. Them's the facts, okay? Now, these truths will keep you from getting torpedoed by lying lifestyles. So he says, dear children, dear children of God, don't let anyone lead you astray. So theologically or morally, don't follow their example. Don't embrace their sin. Because if they did, you, they would be in big trouble. Here's what they were saying, and it was tempting. He's saying, don't let them lead you astray with, look at us, we're having fun. We're popular in the world. We're not offending people. We're not shedding certain people groups and alternative lifestyles out. The world agrees with us, and we get to gratify our sinful natures. We're not having to pick up the cross, deny self, and just call Jesus Lord and then shut everybody else out. We're much more loving and tolerant of others than you guys are. We see the good in people and all paths we respect. And we're being spiritual too. So they made the same kinds of claims. They used the same kind of lingo. But their lives were morally and spiritually without power and bankrupt. So... Here's what he says. Whoever does the right thing is righteous, just like God is righteous. But whoever does what is sinful is of the devil because that's been the devil's gig since the beginning of time. Now, brace yourself. Here's what he says. Now, listen, let me put it to you this another way. John says, everyone who does what is right is righteous. Now, that's going to need some explaining. And I'm here to do that for you, all right? What does that mean? So when an unbeliever helps with a charity, that's a pretty right thing to do. Does that make him righteous? He says that right there. Everyone who does what is right is righteous. So when the atheist tells the truth and is a law-abiding citizen, does that make him righteous? He does, he's doing the right thing. When a non-Christian resists the idea of having an affair, he's done the right thing. Does that make him righteous? John will say, no. The term righteous and righteousness must be defined and understood biblically. Now, righteous is the toughest word for an American Christian to grasp. Number one, because it used to be slang. Righteous, okay? And it used to mean cool or groovy or hip, all right? Or today, sick, okay? Sick means cool, it, you, whatever. <laughs> and, and, and so instead of saying, oh, my, man, that is so sick, they would say righteous, all right? So we don't know what righteous means, all right? Number two. Righteous in colloquial English now has a negative taste to it, doesn't it? Oh, she's so righteous. What does that mean? Do you think, oh, wow, a godly person? I don't. I see someone's nose up in the air. Oh, they're so righteous. Right? It's a terrible uh, obscuring of biblical meaning. He says, the Greek word 
dikaios. It means to be right with God, blameless or innocent. To be in right relationship with God through faith. And therefore, anything that comes from that is right behavior. All right? So he says, in other words, right with God people do right with God things. So when you look at somebody's life, who would say, and they did, they said, we're righteous. That was what they were saying across town. In other words, we're right with God. We're okay with God. We have our own relationship with God. We are spiritual. We're cool. We've got a system going on here. We're right with God. We're going to our heaven or whatever it is that, that they're going to. So they say they're righteous. He says, do they live like a Christian? Then they're not. Do they read their Bible? Do they think Jesus is Lord? Do they love the Christian church? Do they go to Bible studies? Do they praise and worship God through Jesus Christ? Do they abstain from sin? Because right with God people live right with God. That's what those who do right are righteous means. He could have said those who are Christian live Christian lives. That's what that sentence means. Or they're liars. Now, you may not live a very good Christian life and still be a Christian. But the gist of the meaning here is because God's seed is in you, a plant of rightness with God is growing, and the fruit will be right with God fruit. And we all know what that looks like. He says, come on, you know what that means. Like, are they surrendered to God? Do they want to do God's will? Is Jesus alone Lord? Do they love and obey God's word? Do they care about the lost? Do they have character qualities like mercifulness and forgiveness and all of that? Do they go to church? All of that. That's what that sentence means. And so closing up. On a sobering note, he says, I, John is just, let me make it easy, let me make it easy, dear children, let me make it easy. Verses 9 and 10, paraphrased. God's children can't go on in sinful living since God's seed remains in them and is growing. They're born of God. This is how we can tell who's who, who's with God and who's with his enemy. Check out the life. So here's what he's saying, finally. Don't be led astray. There's only two possibilities out there in the whole world. Staggering implications, aren't they? Only two um, categories. Two spiritual forces that are at work, the Bible says. Human beings align themselves with one or the other. The Bible says there are two kingdoms and two kingdoms opposing each other, living kind of together. God is the author of goodness. He is the king of the kingdom of God. And his adversary, which is what the word Satan means, is enemy or adversary. His adversary, Satan, is the author of evil. He is the prince of darkness. So you have the two kingdoms. All human beings, because of their sin nature, were born into the world of darkness and rebellion which is dominated by the devil. And we've all shared in that kingdom at one time or another, even if we were children at the time, because anyone who has sinned, like the devil, has aligned himself with the devil. But 
then conversion. Colossians chapter 1. We believed in the gospel and God rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son Jesus, whom he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's Colossians 1. So here's what he's saying. In all the claims and the clamor and the six billion people all in commotion, organizations, movements, philosophies, and religion, it's very easy. It's by the behavior, not the profession. You've got two choices, and you can tell which group they belong to by how they live their lives. You do not, listen, you do not live your life in goodness and righteousness so that you can get to heaven. John is saying, because you've been given heaven, out comes goodness and righteousness. So the kingdom of God, the Father God who planted his seed in the hearts of those who opened in faith, uh, the Lord says, it's like a mustard seed. It goes in, you can't even tell it happens. You can't even see anything at first, but then it grows. And it takes over the place like a mustard seed starts out tiny. You can put it under your fingernail. And it becomes one of the biggest shrubs in the garden. Just takes over everything. He says, that's what God's seed will do. Once it gets in you, it just starts. It remains. It never leaves. It remains eternally. And it grows. And then right behavior comes. There's allegiance to Jesus, him alone, God's will, and everything I've been mentioning. Now, the kingdom of darkness, he doesn't say that all unbelievers are born of the devil. He does say that when they are in opposition and rebellion to God, cognitively or no, consciously, willfully or not, they are in league with the adversary, and so they have partnered with the adversary, whether they are intending to do so or not. The Bible's take is they have. They've linked arms, and God sees them on that side of the fence. Members have, um, of that kingdom have an unbroken lifestyle of continual lawlessness and unbelief. Now... In conclusion, you know, if you plant zebra tomato seeds, you ought to be able to look forward to what you planted <laughs> and those delicious, wonderful, zingy tomatoes that sound good for lunch even today. God says, and if I, the God of the universe and the God of all goodness and truth and honesty and righteousness and self-control, plant a seed in one of your sinful hearts and it goes in through faith, then I can expect to see fruit hanging in your lives that reflect the goodness and the character of me because you're born of God and you've get, been planted his seed. And so we see the difference between the two kingdoms. Why? So we can look and go, oh, there's one of them. No. So that, number one, we don't think that we can live like them and claim to be born of God. Number two, what I get from this is a real soberness about how I think of sin. We're very casual. When I read 1 John, I get the heebie-jeebies about sinning. 
It's like, oh, well, I sin. God forgives me. It's okay. So I can maybe gossip. You know, right when you're about to say something and you feel a little bit like the Lord's on you and he's like, no, don't say it. And you say it anyway. Why? Because, oh, you know what? I'll just tell him about it. It's cool. When I'm in 1 John, I just, I, I don't feel that way. I feel sick about sin. And how, how easy it is for me to justify, ah, oh, you know, everybody does it. And it's just a little sin. You know, little baby rattlesnakes, they're little bitty things. They got venom. They got teeth, too. You got to be careful. Just a little thing. So, and thirdly and finally, it just helps us to know who to pray for, who to share the gospel with, who to love and reach out, who to befriend. Because our whole goal is not to just enjoy the fact that we've been taken out of that kingdom, but to help others to come with us to a new kingdom, a kingdom of light and truth and love. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. Father, we are desperate, and without you, we are desperate sinners. Even with your presence, it is hard. And every day, we hear the other voice calling and prompting, using our own brain. Father, help us distinguish your voice from the voice of this world and the voice of darkness and to be who we are. I think that's what you're saying to us this morning. Be who I'm making you to be. Be who you are in Christ. We thank you for the grace and the strength to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.